literally means good news. So possibly that's what you think of. Uh, maybe your answer is a little bit longer than that, maybe a little bit more articulate uh, than just good news. Uh, maybe it's uh, a realization that Christ had died on the cross for sins. Uh, when, when we say the gospel, there's a lot of things that that can be interpreted. Uh, and sometimes people say, well, I, I know the gospel. What, what else do you have? Uh, we're we're going to spend all morning this morning talking about the gospel. Is, is that it? You know, sometimes that's the response. Uh, to which I would respond, there's nothing more than that. The Bible is the gospel. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. The message of the Bible uh, is the gospel. But why? And for what purpose? Uh, so this morning we're going to follow Paul's example when he wrote these words to the church in Corinth. He said, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's from 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. So we're going to focus on Jesus Christ and him crucified this morning. So the three points, as you can see in in the bulletin this morning, are in relation to the gospel. Why do we need it? What is it, and what is it for? If we can't answer those questions, then we can't answer those questions to somebody else uh, who may not know the gospel and who may be uh, wanting to know what it means. So uh, just a few weeks ago, as kind of as a way of introduction and kind of uh, to give us some historical context for what Paul is writing in this letter to the Ephesians, uh, a few weeks ago, Pastor Tim uh, has been preaching through the book of Acts, and we actually looked at the foundation and the beginning of the church in Ephesus. Uh, if you remember, Apollos was preaching about Jesus, and he was getting a few things wrong, so Aquila and Priscilla kind of pulled him off to the side, uh, kind of explained a few things to him, and then he later on went uh, and continued on his way preaching, ended up going to Corinth, and then at that time we have Paul coming through the church uh, in Ephesus. He's visiting the city in Ephesus and he's continuing to preach and he asks them if they've heard about the Holy Spirit and they say, uh, no, no, we've never heard of the Holy Spirit. So, so Paul explains to them the Holy Spirit and at that point, the church in Ephesus explodes. Uh, we learned about uh, the, the riot that took place because the idol makers were upset because they weren't making any money making idols to Artemis because nobody was worshiping Artemis anymore. The whole, the whole culture of that city was changed because of the gospel. So this is the climate that Paul is writing his letter to that we read here in Ephesians. He's writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, and these are the things that he says after his introduction, which was in chapter 1. So he's writing to the church in Ephesus and telling them about the gospel, which they already had been preached about. So why? Why do we need the gospel? So we see it in these first verses uh, in chapter 2. The reason we need the gospel... Because Paul lays it out in first verse. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we see in that opening phrase 
what he's stating in that opening phrase is usually how a story would end, uh, unless it's a fairy tale and those always end with happily ever after. Uh, but sometimes, a lot of times, stories will, you know, if they're telling the, uh, about the life of a person, you know, this person did, was born and he did this and then, and then he died and that's the end of the story, the end. Uh, but that's where Paul starts with his letter to the Ephesian church. He says that we were dead. It's very clear. There's no question of our status that we are born dead. So I know what you're thinking, though, but I wasn't born dead. I'm pretty sure I'm alive right now. I mean, I'm pretty sure I'm alive right now. I wasn't born dead. I was born alive. Uh, so what's this, what's this mean? As we continue on in the text, he says, in which you once walked. So there it is. So we were born dead, but able to walk. Our culture now can kind of get an understanding of this a little bit. Uh, it seems we're a little bit obsessed right now with, uh, in, in entertainment, they seem to be very obsessed with, with zombies and vampires. Uh, in fact, there's a show on AMC titled The Walking Dead, uh, which I've never watched the show, but I think all of us are kind of familiar with what zombies are. Uh, the, the undead, they're kind of walking around mindless. Uh, I think they're looking for brains. I think that's their primary focus. Uh, but that's what, that's, that's what we are. That's what Paul is telling us in the beginning of these verses. Uh, is that apart from Christ, we are dead. We are the walking dead. But what are we dead in? Well, we see it right here. We are dead in trespasses and sins. Now, both of these terms are, are a little bit similar. You know, we understand what sin is. You know, lying, cheating, uh, pride being the big ugly one, uh, murder, uh, and trespasses. You know, if we kind of boil trespasses down to their their basic term, uh, when you think about trespasses, just think about a no trespassing sign. Uh, my family has a cabin in upstate PA, uh, and we ha- we just had a little tiny property, and then but we would hunt on co- what was basically common land. Well, then uh, bigger companies started coming in. They started posting signs, and the, and the area where you could hunt and ride four-wheelers kept shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. Uh, at that point, the family decided it was time to buy some of our own land. Uh, but when you see no trespassing signs, I mean, that's a serious, that's a serious sign, uh, especially in upstate PA. You know, if you trespass, you can get shot for that stuff uh, up there in upstate PA. Uh, they take trespassing very seriously up there. But when, when you see a trespassing sign, when you're looking at the sign, you're in safety. But as soon as you cross that line, behind the sign, you've gone too far. You've crossed a line and you've gone too far. And what we see happening in life is that we've gone too far when it comes to God and his law. So we not only sin, but we take that sin and we go way too far. And these are the things that Paul is, is, is describing to us and laying out at the beginning of this letter. And I know everybody's thinking, wow, this is like the most depressing sermon uh, we've heard in a while. Uh, but this is where we have to start. We have to have an understanding of where we are without Christ. Trust me, it gets better at the end, and we'll get to that uh, as we move on. Uh, the good news is coming. Uh, but this is what we've all done before God, that we don't obey. We see the line and we cross it. And I'm not talking to, I'm not specifically talking to unbelievers this morning, because remember, this letter is written to the church. Paul's writing to Christians and saying, we see God's law and we break it. 
We see, his, we see his no trespassing sign and we say, no, that doesn't apply to me. I'm going to cross it anyway. It's the sin that we all deal with and it's the sin that we all fight against. Going too far. And this is Paul's reminder to the church at Ephesus and it's the reminder to us today about where we stand before a holy and righteous God. Continuing on, uh, he says in, uh, in the next verse, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. And these are also actions uh, of someone who is alive. You, you can't follow something if you're not living to follow it. Uh, so again, we see, this, uh, we see this example and we see this illustration of, of the walking dead, uh, that we're born dead, uh, but still acting and following uh, after Satan and the prince of this air. So, we have the, uh, as we think about that though, as we think about what it means to be born spiritually dead, when we think about, if we think about it in, in light of physical death, when we have, when, when we experience physical death, we can't respond to anything. You know, somebody laying dead in a casket cannot get up out of that casket. They can't talk to anybody who's living uh, they can't interact. They have no hopes. They have no dreams. Everything is done. There's no interaction with the living. And we, we understand that from a physical standpoint. But it's the same thing with a spiritual standpoint. When we're born spiritually dead, we can't interact with anything that's spiritual. God is spirit. That means we can't interact with God. Because we are born dead spiritually dead. And this is the most heartbreaking thing of, of, of this difficult truth when we, when we understand our depravity before a holy God is that, that us being born dead, we have no fellowship with a holy God because God is spirit. We need, we need a redeemer. Uh, Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. And we see that that sin leads to death, and that death is separation. That death is described in Scripture as a separation from God. That God, in, in, in His holiness, is way over here, all the way over on this side. And us and our depravity, and born in sin, and born in death, are way over here. And there's no way for us to get from one side to the other. It's God who has to come to us. It's always been this way. If we look at the, if we start at the very beginning of Scripture, we go all the way back to Genesis. When God created Adam and Eve, it was God who came down and walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. As the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness, it was God who came down and dwelt in the tabernacle. His presence came down and dwelt with them. When they entered the promised land and they built the temple, it was God who came down and His presence dwelt in the temple. And then we fast forward to the book of John, the Gospel of John, and we see John describing that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son came down and dwelt among us. And then we see in Revelation at the very end of time, the very end, the last book of the Bible, we see the holy city coming down to earth 
It has always been this way. It's always God coming to us. There's no way for us to reach up to Him. There's no way for us to climb up and be good enough to uh, be in relationship and uh, fellowship with a holy God. It's always been God coming down. And we see that here in this text. The separation that we experience from God happened all the way back in the garden when Satan tricked Adam and Eve and said, oh, if you eat of the fruit, you're not going to die. You'll be fine. And she ate of the fruit and what happened? Well, she didn't die physically, but she died spiritually. Adam and Eve both died spiritually. And that separation is what we're born into as sinners. We don't realize what is at stake. When we're born into sin, when we can only sin, we're born as enemies of God. We're in high treason against a holy God. Uh, there, was, there was times in my life when I thought about the, the story of salvation and, and, and kind of put it into a little bit of a narrative. And, and I thought about maybe like this little orphan kid in the, in the streets, and that was me, and you know, kind of dirty and, and, and hungry. And, and, uh, you know, and then one day the king comes along and scoops me up and takes me into his palace and, and out of fear, I'm kind of trembling before him and, and bowing and, and hoping that my meager worship would be enough. And he gets the robe and he puts the robe on me and adopts me as his son. I mean, that's a great story. It's like right out of a Hallmark movie. The problem is it's not accurate. I wasn't, I wasn't an innocent little orphan child in the streets. I was a street urchin throwing stones at the palace every chance I got. And whenever I could, I'd be sneaking into the palace to steal the king's stuff. That's what we are apart from Christ. We're not born neutral with the ability to choose to do right or choose to do wrong. We're born as sinners in treason against the holy God. So what does that leave us with? As we get back to our text, we look uh, the next verse saying, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What? Children of wrath? I mean, that is a, you know, I, I, I just kind of described that story, but I don't know that I would have taken it that far. Children, children of wrath like the rest of mankind? That's what the Bible tells us we are. That we are born spiritually dead, children of wrath, without Christ. That we all once lived in the passions of our flesh and we were created to worship. The reason we were created was to worship. We were created to worship God. And what we do is we worship everything else but God. We say, God, I don't want to worship you. I want to worship your stuff. I'm going to worship my job. I'm going to worship my income. I'm going to worship my family. I'm going to worship my kids. I mean, these are all things that, that our culture looks at and thinks, that's not too bad. He just really likes his job and he works really hard. And that's... You know, that's good too, but we have to be careful when we start worshiping our job. Well, he just really loves his wife and loves his kids, and he's a good father and he's a good husband. 
But that can easily turn into worship. Worshiping family and worshiping your children and, and creating gods out of them which they are never able to satisfy. We take God's gifts and we turn them into gods. And it is the highest form of idolatry. That God in His loving goodness to us blesses us with things and we take those things and say, I don't need you anymore, God. I'm going to worship this thing as God. We don't have idols very much anymore. The, the, the riot that broke out in Ephesus over the, you know, the, the, the idols that the silversmiths weren't able to make. We don't, we don't really have those little tiny trinket idols very much in our culture at least. In some places we do. But here, our idols are very different. Instead of being statues, a lot of times our idols have flesh and bone. Being children and, and wives and relationships and, and family. Um, so we have to be very careful as we think about the good things that God gives us. And we, and we look at those and we need to acknowledge that those are good gifts from God. But he gives those to us so that we can roll our worship up to him. That it's not about that item. It's not about that thing. It's not about the good thing that he gave us. It's about worshiping him as the giver of those gifts. God's holiness demands unceasing worship. He is a holy God entitled to unending worship. And he's also jealous. Scripture tell us, tells us that God is a jealous God. That he is consumed with His own glory. That God's glory is the most important thing to Him. That God thinks of nothing but Himself. If that was said of us, we would be the most arrogant person in the world and that would be the highest form of treason against the Holy God. And yet, that is who God is and has to be. Because if God is thinking of anything else beyond Himself, then He's guilty of idolatry. And that, would never, and that could never be the case. God is consumed with his own glory and he demands from us worship because he's worthy of it. He is worthy of all of our worship and it's all supposed to roll to him. The good things that he gives us, we thank him for them and roll that worship up to him as the giver of all of those good gifts. God's the one God's the one that created the flavors that we, that we can taste when we eat food. Do we thank God for how delicious uh, you know, strawberries taste or, or how delicious uh, a steak tastes? God made steak taste that way. That was God's idea. And then when you mix steak with something else and it makes a new flavor, God, God did that. God created those flavors. When we're eating our meal, it's not just being thankful that he gave that meal to us. It's being thankful for how good it tastes. It could all taste like slop. God could have just made everything all taste the same and, and we just ate it just so that we had nourishment. But God in his creative love to us created flavors. He created a, a world for us to enjoy. All, but all of that worship needs to roll up to him as thankfulness to him for what he's done. So we've seen a lot, we've seen a lot about our depravity and we've seen a lot about our, our place, where we're at. That we're born dead. That we have no chance of salvation outside of God. That, that our state is depraved and, and death and, 
and bent on destruction. This is why we're described as children of wrath, because our offense is so severe. We were born dead, and that's how we should remain. We should be dead. But God. But God. So the gospel, what is it? These next verses, I love these verses. Anytime we see the words, but God, we know something awesome is about to happen. Uh, so we know something is, is happening in these verses. And in these verses, what we see happening is God's mercy, his love, and his grace. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now there's a lot in those verses, and it's all good. Uh, so let's kind of, I want to kind of walk through them and, and break them apart a little bit because there's a lot of truth packed in there. Uh, they're very rich. Uh, so we need, to ex- we need to start by acknowledging who has all the power. In, in those verses, where does the power lie? It's in the second word. All the power is God's. So we acknowledge that he has all the power and our salvation is his work being a rich in mercy because of his great love. And we see this, uh, we see this uh, talk and this uh, teaching on love in 1 John 4, 8, where, where John writes, anyone who does not love does not love God, does not know God because God is love. So we see throughout Scripture that, that there's this theme that God is love. A lot of times people think that God's angry in the Old Testament. That's angry Old Testament God, but, but he really mellows out in the New Testament and it's all about grace, love, and mercy. But if you read some of the prophets in the Old Testament, the reason they didn't obey, the reason Jonah didn't want to go is because he knew God was merciful. God's love and mercy is all throughout Scripture. It's not just the New Testament. It's not just Jesus is loving and merciful. God is is love. His being is love. So we see that, that he shows us his love in these verses through his grace and his mercy. But not a little love or a little grace or a little mercy. Being rich in mercy because of his great love. Those are two amazing words to describe God and his love and his goodness to us. Now remember, when we're talking about God and his riches, this is the God that created the universe. That NASA estimates that there's over 100 billion galaxies. Not stars. Not 100 billion stars. That there's 100 billion galaxies. So when God talks about being rich in anything, we're not talking about Bill Gates rich. We're not talking about man's idea of riches. We're talking about God's riches, the God who created everything, who spoke those hundred billion galaxies into existence with his own words. That's the God who is great and mighty 
and gives his great and mighty mercy and grace to us. It's over-the-top mercy, and it flows out of his great love for us. It's beyond what we could ever imagine. This is the God who loves us as his children. But just in case we forgot what our condition was without God, he reminds us again in, this second pa- in, this, in the passage that we're going through. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Again, like just driving that point home in this text. That we started out understanding that we were born dead and then God changes everything. But just in case we forgot, we were, that's where we were born. That we were still born in our trespasses and sins. Uh, basically the, the, the zombies that we talked about earlier. But here's the best part. That he made us alive together with Christ. That who made us alive? That he made us alive. That we were born spiritually dead and God raised us to life and made us alive with Christ. So how does that happen? Well, when Christ died on the cross, Scripture tells us that when Christ died on the cross, he died for the sins of those who believe and, and they were identified with Christ on the cross. That, that the old flesh, the sinful flesh that I was born into died with Christ on the cross. And because Christ was perfect, because he lived the life that I could never live, because he obeyed God all the way to the point of death, all of that righteousness that was Christ's was placed on me. So that when God looks at me, he sees Christ's righteousness. I'm still a sinner. I still sin. I was born a sinner. So if we think about it like this, when you're born, why do, why do sinners sin? Well, they, they sin because they're a sinner. They sin because they can't help it. Because that's the nature. So when I'm saved, when Christ raises me to life, why do I continue to sin? Because I'm still a sinner. Because I'm still fighting this old flesh. And we'll be sinners until we die. But by God's grace, and because of the work of Christ on the cross, when Christ places his righteousness on me, God doesn't look at me and see a sinner. He looks at me and sees his son. That's what happened. That's, it's called the great exchange, where my sin was placed on Christ, and Christ's righteousness was placed on me. It's the beauty of the gospel, and it's the message that we need to proclaim to a world that's hurting and in need of hope, because Christ is the only source of hope. So when I sin, when I, when I lie, or, or when I get angry, or when I'm prideful, any one of those sins, I need to confess those sins to whoever I sinned against. I need to confess those sins to a holy God. Not that he doesn't know that I sinned because he saw it. He knew it before it was going to happen. But, but it opens that fellowship with God. But the most important thing I can do is to confess that sin to other people so that other people know that I'm not perfect. I think there's a lot of times when, when we as Christians kind of create this uh, air about us 
that we don't sin anymore. And it's just silly because we do. And the world knows it. They see it. They know when I get angry, whether I admit it or not. They see when I get angry or they know when I lied about something or they know when I'm being prideful. So for me not to confess it and admit it is just silly. So we don't need to pretend that we're something we're not because Christ has placed his righteousness on us. I don't need to work for anything to gain entrance to God. I don't need to work for his favor because it's already been given because of his son's work on the cross. And we're going to see that point as we close uh, with the last part of the text because we do get to works, uh, which is important for us to understand the place of works. Uh, In Luke... 9:23 and 14 verse 27 we also see this being taught uh, that he says and he said to them all if any man will come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple we see that that identity that we have with Christ on the cross is that we're daily carrying our cross that cross is not the little challenges that I have in my life or uh, little difficulties or getting stuck in traffic on the way to work. That's not our cross. Our cross is literally what it sounds like, that we're carrying that cross, the same cross that Christ carried because we're identifying that we have been and we continue to be identified with what Christ did on the cross on our behalf. So as we get back to our text, Uh, Paul ends verse 5 by saying, by grace you have been saved. That's the last of the big three in those verses. We saw mercy, we saw his mercy, his love, and his grace. His grace being giving us things that we don't deserve, things that we could never earn. Salvation through Christ. Verse 6 continues and says, And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So not only did he make us alive, but he raised us up. And we see this picture in the Gospels when we see uh, Jesus coming to the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus being dead in the tomb for several days. And Jesus standing at the tomb and saying, Lazarus, come out. Literally raising Lazarus from the dead and raising him up to fellowship with himself. I mean, if you think about it, Lazarus was dead and in heaven. And Jesus brings him back to earth. That would be very disappointing, I would assume. And yet, what is is Lazarus' response? His, His response is one of great joy. Why? Because Jesus is there. He's reunited with Christ to have fellowship with Christ. Christ is everything. And we see that in Lazarus' response as he's raised from the dead, that he celebrates with Jesus because he's back in fellowship with Christ. And as the text says here, that we are seated with him, which means that we're citizens of heaven. That you see me here and I see you here on earth. But our citizenship is one of of being with Christ. That we are 
spiritually identified with Christ, that we are with Christ spiritually connected with Him, and that one day for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth, we will experience Him face to face in our resurrected bodies for continual fellowship throughout the rest of eternity. And we see that here in these verses, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Again, immeasurable riches. A hundred billion galaxies worth of riches poured out on His children for all eternity. I think it was Charles Spurgeon that had described eternity this way, that eternity is a classroom. God is the professor, we're the students, and the subject throughout all eternity is God. His grace to us, that we will constantly be learning more and more about God and His grace and His mercy and His love to us. That we don't show up on the first day of eternity knowing everything. That we constantly are continuing to grow and each day is better than the day before. That God is continuing to teach us and continuing to pour out His goodness to us uh, throughout all eternity. C.S. Lewis Uh, described heaven as the great story which no one on earth has read which goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's what we have to look forward to because of what Christ has done on the cross. That is the great hope. The great hope for salvation now from sin and freedom in Christ and that hope that continues on forever because of what Christ done has done because of his great mercy and his great love that brings us to the last point so what is the gospel for what does the text tell us that the gospel is for it's for good works now it might be a little confusing because We've spent all of this time talking about God and talking about His goodness and how how He pours out His goodness to us and how we can't save ourselves, that God is the one that raises us to life, that He's the one that that extends grace to us and He's the one that puts faith into us, that He's the one that saves so what is, this, what is this business about works at the end of these verses? Well, we have to deal with it because it's in the text. Uh, so we're going to talk about it this morning. So picking it up in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So our salvation is the work of God's grace. By grace, through faith, we've been saved. But if you look at that, if you look at the verse, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. Well, what does the this reference? The this references grace and faith. That the work of salvation is completely God's work. If we go back to the earlier, uh, earlier points in the sermon when I was talking about physical death 
And how when, when you die physically, you can't interact with the living. It's impossible. You're dead. When we're born spiritually dead, we can't interact with that which is spiritually living, being God. It's God, God is the one who has to save. God is the one that comes and puts faith in you to believe. None of us are smart enough to figure this out on our own. It's God who comes down and puts faith in those who believe so that they can believe. Without His faith, there is no chance of us believing. If we think about what happens, the main sin that sends people to hell is what? Unbelief. A lack of faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. The lack of faith sends people to hell. So that lack of faith is one of the sins that Christ died for. My lack of faith in Christ is one of the sins that He paid the price for. So when God makes me alive, He gives me the faith to believe. He puts that faith in me because of His great love and His great grace and His great mercy. We see this in Romans 3.11 that no man seeks after God. We're born as traitors and we run from God every chance we get and it's God who comes and saves. No one, none of us seek after God. We don't go after God. He comes after us to put faith in us. Remember, as, as we talked earlier, that we were dead in our sins and dead people don't reach for life. Paul further emphasizes this point when he says that this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. None of this is a result of what we have done. It's God. It's all God. We can't clean ourselves up to get saved. There's no amount of good works that we can ever do to earn salvation. There's no amount of good deeds. There's no amount of doing the right things and not doing the bad things that we could ever do to earn salvation. It is a gift. We can't clean ourselves up. Because if we could clean ourselves up to be accepted by God, then we wouldn't need a Savior. And if we didn't need a Savior, Christ died for nothing. We need Christ's work on the cross. Calvary stands as a beacon that says you can't do it. But He has already done it. When Christ said it is finished, the work, of salvation, the work of salvation was finished. That God, through Christ, made a way for sinners to be saved. Because God knew that if it was through our own works, that we would brag about it. If I knew that I could earn my own salvation, that would be the loudest trumpet that I would ever play on. That we would constantly be bragging about how we earned it and how we did it and how we were smart enough to figure it out, how we were good enough to earn salvation. I mean, we all know the co-workers at work that brag about the promotion that they got. That's kind of in our nature. It's sin, it's pride, and it's ugly. It's that deadness that we're all born into, that sin of pride. 
It's another one of the sins that Jesus died for. That sin of pride. And then Paul continues on in verse 10, the last verse that we're going to look at this morning. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here it is, the last verse that we're studying this morning. We're supposed to be doing good works. But we've got to remember that we don't do good works to earn salvation. We do good works as evidence of our salvation. And the difference could not be any bigger. That I don't do good works, that I don't, that I don't live an obedient life to try and earn my salvation. I do it because I'm already saved. Because God commands us to. And that, that we don't love our neighbor as a way to earn our salvation. We don't witness to our neighbor. We don't share the gospel with co-workers or family members as a way to earn favor or earn salvation. We do it because God commanded us to. We do good works because we're saved, not to earn salvation. We have to understand, as, as Christians, we have to understand this concept of good works. And, and we even see it in the passage, that last verse, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That God had, has saved us, for those that believe in Christ, that God has raised us to life, made us alive, and then set us on a path that has good works on it already for us to do. That God has prepared ahead of us a whole pathway of good works until we die that we're supposed to do as obedience to Christ, as obedience to God, as evidence of our salvation. And we see these kind of sprinkled throughout the New Testament. I have a couple of them here. Uh, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That's Matthew 5.16. We do not perform good works to glorify ourselves, but to glorify God. Paul desires that Christians would be magnified in his body, even if it meant death. That we should abound to every good work, according to 2 Corinthians 9.8, and be fruitful in every good work, Colossians 1.10. One result of knowledge of the Bible is that the believer is thoroughly equipped for every good work, according to 2 Timothy 3.17. As believers, we are to be zealous of good works. Titus 2.14 Our good works are actually spiritual sacrifices that we offer to God, according to Hebrews 13.16. Scripture commands us to do good works in order to glorify our Father. But what makes them good works? Because I can do good things that don't count as good works. If I do something that looks good on the outside, but I'm doing it because I want to get attention or because there's a pride issue, that doesn't count as good works. So what counts as good works? What makes them good works is because we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Not all of the good works we do bring glory to God and blessing to others. Because we still have the world, the flesh, and the devil fighting against us. But Paul is contrasting these works that he describes 
that we're supposed to do with what's being described in verse 2 of the passage, where non-believers are following the prince of the power of the air. No matter how good their works appear, they are not good works in the sight of God. They may appear good, but in God's eyes, their self-righteousness is filthy rags. My self-righteousness is filthy rags. And remember, we don't manifest these good works on our own. They are God's working in our lives. They are God's work working in our lives. Philippians 2.13 says, It is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Our Christian lives have very little to do with our effort. It is God who saves. It is God who initiates the good works. We just need to be obedient to God, his leading in our lives. Now, I know a lot of us here this morning uh, are following Christ as our Lord and Savior. So you may be wondering why we talked about the gospel so much. I mean, this whole, other than the fact that I drew us to 1 Corinthians at the beginning and, and said that that was the message that Paul always proclaimed, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why did we spend the whole morning talking about the gospel? We already know it, right? Well, here's why. Because remember, at the very beginning, Paul wrote this letter to Christians. Paul wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus. This letter was sent to the church at Ephesus, and somebody would stand up in front of the church, like I'm doing right now, and would read a letter from Paul to the church. And what Paul was saying to the church was, you need to remember the gospel. You need to remind yourself of the gospel every day. Why? Because all of us are dumb enough to forget it every day. I'm dumb enough to forget it every day. I need to wake up every day and remind myself of what the gospel is, why I needed it, and what I'm supposed to do with it. And because this letter was inspired by the Holy Spirit, That means God knew that we needed to be reminded of the gospel every day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truths of of your word. We thank you for this letter from from Paul to the church at Ephesus that we can can read today. And that the truths that that we studied this morning are as applicable today as they were thousands of years ago that we are born dead, that our situation is desperate, that we desperately need a Savior, a Redeemer, who died in our place, who raises us to life, and sets us on a path of good works. Father, for those that that are here this morning that that don't believe in the Gospel, Father, I pray that, that Your Spirit would stir in their hearts, that they would that they would be opened to the truths that, that, that your word contains. That you would raise them to life. For those of us here this morning that believe in you and have been walking with you, in some cases many years or maybe just a year or two, Father, we pray that your spirit would work in us, that you would sanctify us 
as we are on this journey of good works to do to bring glory to you. Father, help us to fight sin in our lives. Help us to fight the sin of pride and the sin of selfishness and self-righteousness. Father, we pray that, that your spirit would convict and challenge. And as we're being sanctified, Father, we know that you are doing a work that only you can do. That you're forming us and changing us into the image of your Son. Father, we thank you for that miraculous work. Help us to recognize how miraculous it actually is that you take sinners and make them your sons and daughters. Thank you again for sending Jesus to pay the price for our sins on the cross and that his righteousness was placed on us. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen.